My name is Erskine Bell, the host of the Black Self-Sabotage Trap podcast. This podcast takes an honest look at why so many Black Americans continue to lag behind all other groups in so many areas. Is this a byproduct of racism? Or is it largely due to the influence of Black culture? Black self-sabotage. Today's episode does a deep dive into education in the inner cities. Today, education in the inner cities, as far as black students are concerned, is worse than ever. Can anything be done about it? Who should shoulder the blame? Every week I ask that you send a review for the show. I encourage you to rate the show each and every week. And I want to begin today's show by reading a very interesting uh, comment that I received on last week's show. The person wrote, The trap is real. There is so much truth in this message. The tools needed to advance the culture exist, but not readily known. I disagree with the idea that self-sabotage is representative of black culture in its entirety, but rather it is the result of an attack on black culture. However, attacks can be warded off by those properly armed and trained. I'm looking forward to the journey. Well, thank you for sending in the review. I encourage everyone to send in a review each week on the show. And later on this season, I'm going to get some of the people who send in reviews to be on the show, and we're going to uh, discuss their point of view. Today's show is about education, but I'm going to take a scenic route to get there. I need to pick up a few tools along the way to tackle the problem when we start to talk about education. Last week's show, I believe that I told everyone that I grew up in the Mississippi Delta. And I was reading this paper that I found about the Mississippi Delta, thinking that things maybe had changed since I left. And in this research paper, talking about cultural issues, about the cultural diet and health problems that are associated with the region, I find a paper that states the following. The 18 counties of the Mississippi Delta are characterized by high levels of poverty, high levels of chronic disease and mortality rates that significantly exceed the national average. Moreover, regional mortality rates have increased during the past four decades, even as national rates have decreased. As of 2017, the cardiovascular disease attributed mortality rate was the highest in the nation. 46.4% of blacks living in the state of Mississippi have hypertension. Uh, That's a lot of people. Also, when it comes to strokes, 65 people out of every 100,000 die related to having a stroke. Now, in my mid-20s, my blood pressure started to go up. I went to the doctor. He asked me about my family history, about where I was from, and I told him I was from the Mississippi Delta. 
So the first thing he wanted to do was prescribe for me some high blood pressure pills because he said, it's probably in your family genes and you're from an area where everybody has high blood pressure. So I went home and started doing a little research. And to my surprise, that in the Mississippi Delta, and I'm sure in other places, what I found was there was a correlation between hypertension and education. In the state of Mississippi, for people that have less than a high school degree, 57.3. For those with a high school or GED, 43.3. Some post-high school education, 37.2. But for college graduates, it was 30%. So I was thinking, well, how does education have anything to do with rates of hypertension? Then I looked at strokes. People with less than high school education, 8.4%. Go all the way down to college graduates, 2.7%. Again, why would education affect the number of strokes that people have? So as I started to look at my own situation, I discovered that even though I had moved away from the South, that I was still eating that Mississippi Delta diet, that cultural Southern diet where almost everything is fried. Even the vegetables are fried, corn, okra, you name it, it is fried. Everything is smothered in a gravy. Sweet tea is extra sweet. I had to face some hard truths that I did not want to face because this was a diet that I had grown to love. So in order for me to get better without having to take pills the rest of my life, which would not be very good for my health, I had to change my diet. I had to let the fast food go. No more Popeye's chicken. My wife is an excellent cook. No more curry chicken. No more oxtail. No more jerk chicken. No more Escovitch fish. My lifestyle had to change. So I started eating mostly a vegetarian diet. Took up cycling. And after a few months, blood pressure down. 117 over to 77. It was a hard decision, but it was one that had to be made. Once I was sitting on the plane on a flight, and the lady sitting next to me, and we started talking about health, and she started to share her story. She told me about a time that she had a life-changing moment. She said once she was sitting in the seat, and the stewardess came back, and said to her, Ma'am, you're going to have to pay for two seats because she was so large that she was spilling over into the other seat. And she said at that moment, even though she had battled weight all of her life, that she knew at that point that she had to make a decision and that she was going to change. But once she was brought to that point, she went on to tell me how over the last 15 years of her life, what had been a problem was not a problem any longer because 
she had made the changes that would be necessary to keep her weight down and to keep her healthy. I once knew of a guy that had problems with bone spurs on his ankle, and every so many years he would go to his surgeon, and the surgeon would remove the bone spurs from his ankle. And he had inquired about special shoes, about a special brace, and his doctor once just looked him in the face as he told the story and said to him, Every few years, I can keep operating on you, or you can simply lose some weight and you won't have the problem. You see, in life, sometimes you have to be willing to face hard truths. And sometimes when people tell you the truth, they cannot always sugarcoat it to make it soft. Sometimes the truth that you must face is going to be very hard. And the same is true as we consider education in the inner cities. A few years ago, the Baltimore Sun wrote this article. The Sun reported that Baltimore school students scored near the bottom in reading and math compared to children in other cities in large urban areas. In fourth and eighth grade reading, only 13% of city students are considered proficient. In fourth grade, only 14% were proficient, and in eighth grade, only 11% were proficient. In 2017, Project Baltimore analyzed 2017 state testing data and found one third of Baltimore high schools in 2016 had zero students proficient in math. I was thinking, how is it that you can have a school with teachers and then have zero students? Proficient in math. Maybe it's because maybe the school is underfunded. But as I continued to read the article, it stated it is apparent that despite repeated efforts to improve student learning outcomes, city efforts to improve student results have not been effective, even though Baltimore spends $15,000. $560 per pupil, the fourth highest per student out of the 100 largest school districts in the nation, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Now, how could you be spending that amount of money and still not seeing any improvements in education? Then, another article that came out stated that as students start to return to school for the new year, People should be paying attention to Baltimore City Public Schools. Baltimore has 20,500 students in the public school system. It was recently discovered that 41% of all high school students earn a grade point average below 1.0. Yet, as the students in her system are failing, The CEO of Baltimore City Public Schools has a salary of $325,000.
the highest ever for a Maryland superintendent. Even more troubling was they were given a raise and a contract extension while having such poor performance by the students in their school system. The failure also occurs at the elementary school level. Out of all the elementary school students in Baltimore public school system, 52% had at least one failing grade in the first three quarters of the school year. Students are failing at every level of the system, and school bureaucrats are being lavishly compensated. School students are being held hostage by incompetence while those in charge become wealthy. As I continued reading the article, I thought I had heard the very worst that I could hear about school with zero students proficient in math. But the article went on to state, The stories emerging from Baltimore schools are horrifying. There have been accounts of students in high school being unable to read at grade school levels. Not at high school level, at grade school levels. There are students unable to do math. One student was a high school senior with a 0.13 GPA, graduated and ranked 62nd out of 120 students in his class. The student had failed all but three classes during his first three years of high school. Parents are watching their children fail while being promoted to the next grade. In case if I didn't state earlier, most of the students in the Baltimore inner-city school system that these articles are referring to are black children. How is it that they get all the way to the 12th grade and graduate and cannot read? How is it that you have students that cannot do basic math? How is it that most of these children are failing most of their classes? How did things get so bad? How is it that such high percentage of children can be failing in school? I was looking for some success stories because I was saying, surely somebody has to figure it out how to make this work. I ran across a book entitled Why Race and Culture Matter in Schools, Closing the Achievement Gap in America's Classroom. This book highlights five schools in the inner city with success stories. Those schools are Promise Learning Center, Los Angeles, Duke Ellington Elementary School in Chicago, uh, Neighborhood Middle School, Sunnyside High School. Those schools, for some reason, have a formula that works, and the children are on par with other children in other schools. As I was reading some of the results, from the survey that was done on when people looked into why were these schools successful. They gave a lot of different reasons. They talked about the teacher's role. They talked about the school and what have you. But all the principals of the schools had one thing that they said was key. And let me read one of the passages from the research 
that I found very interesting. It says, Miss Gelson was adamant in her belief about the role that families play in building school community and achieving academic success. This was evident in the monthly family and community nights that were held at PLC and were designed to bring families and school staff together. I was amazed when visiting one of the events to find almost 80 parents on a Tuesday night who were attending to work with teachers and learn ways to help their students become better readers. The event, which lasted for two hours, included parents and teachers actively involved in a wide range of strategies that parents could use at home to help their children. When I asked Ms. Glenson how she was able to create a high level of parent participation, she said it was about investing time to build a relationship with my parents. They are the key. If you don't have them on board, we, the school, don't go anywhere. She is saying that there are other factors, but she is saying the one with parents, that parent piece of it, is the key. She went on to quote some other sources that stated, Research has shown that parental involvement has a significant influence on student achievement. Parental involvement revealed that there was substantial evidence showing that students whose parents are involved in their schooling have increased academic performance and overall cognitive development. That comes about because parents are involved. She went on to state that data reported from the National Assessment of Educational Progress said that there was a 30-scale point difference between students with parents who were involved and those without parental involvement. Researchers also have found that parental involvement is associated with a greater likelihood of their children aspiring to attend college and actually enrolling, as well as with higher grades, higher 8th grade mathematics and reading achievements, lower rates of behavior problems, and a lower likelihood that the children would drop out of school. Now, I realize that the issue with schools in the inner city is a very complex problem. It's not all just about the parents, but parents play a tremendous role in their children's education. And if we're ever going to close the income gap, we must first close the education gap. The data also suggested that for kids in the inner cities that do not do well in school, that do not learn, there's a term that they use called the school-to-prison pipeline. In other words, there is a relationship between the education problem and the crime problem. There's a relationship between failures at school and the gang problem. 
And to my surprise, this week when I was talking with one of the researchers, she said to me that in the black community, we need to find a way to tell our kids that it's okay to be smart. That for some reason, some black kids don't want to be thought of as being smart. I don't know where that comes from, but she was stating that it is a big problem that it's not okay to be a smart black kid in school sometimes. But you see, we have to face some hard truths. Yes, parental involvement in school is a big, big help. We need more good teachers in school. Yes, some schools are better than others. Some schools are better equipped than others. They have better equipment, more class offerings. But there is something else that we need to address and that we need to talk about. Sometimes when people want to tell you a hard truth, they sort of beat around the bush. They offer you some gum rather than tell you that your breath stink. If you ask my wife to do something or to buy something that she don't want to do, rather than telling you no, she'll say, let me talk to my husband about it. That really means she don't want to do it. Or sometimes you say to people that are visiting your house with their children, you say, your kids are very energetic the way they run around climbing on top of stuff. I don't want them to fall and hurt themselves. Rather than saying, you need to tell your children to sit down before they tear up my house. You know, that's the way it is in our culture. We don't like to be told hard truths. But there's a hard truth here that lies underneath all the problems that you see in the inner cities as far as school goes and other things go as it relates to black people. And that is, in cities like Baltimore, Cleveland, Philadelphia, and other major cities in America, seven out of ten black children are born to unwed mothers. Most of them are already living at near or below the poverty level, already receiving some form of government assistance. As a community, shouldn't we make it clear that the breakdown of the black family is the biggest problem that we face? Why don't we tell our sons, our daughters, our nieces, our nephews, and everybody that we need to stop having children that we can't take care of? We might not want to admit it, but when seven out of ten black children are born to single, unwed mothers, it has become part of our culture. Rebuilding the black family is the biggest problem that we face, but it is also the one that could be the most rewarding. Thanks for tuning in today. Remember, we are the masters of our own destinies. If you enjoyed the episode today and would like to be made aware when new episodes are posted, please subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Or you can visit us at blackselfsabotagetrap.com 
We would love to hear from you. Send us your comments about our show by using the website contact page to send us an email or clicking on the microphone icon to send us a voice message. Cheers. <laughs>